You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. And this week we are going to be talking about all sorts of things that aren't very good. What about the fact that you almost sang that intro right at the start? <laughs> Which bit? Um, you said, well, how did, what did you do? What did you say again? You, said, you hit to this the... top note. Did I? Yeah. It, was, it wasn't a very high top note. I was think it? you're in a good mood. Wow. I think that's that's the sign. You're in a good it sounded mood. Sounded like Conchita Worst. Worst. No, Worst. Yeah, that's about right, Mark. About right. <laughs> he hasn't shaved. I... He looks great in that dress, though, I've got to say. 10 out of 10 for effort. He looks great in the dress. Yeah. You do. You called him a he. That's you. God, you're as bad as the Sunday people. You really oh, my God. Are. Can we get on with the podcast before people stop listening? Okay. <laughs> Okay, this week we're going to talk about lots of crap things. Except, are they as crap as we think they are? We no. don't know. We'll find out when we talk about them, won't we? Hey, Possibly. Mr. Nymon. Hey. <laughs> they're not going to get mentioned because they're not crap. <laughs> Is he Mr. Nymon and I'm Mr. Croton? Is that how it was going to work? Oh, that's how we'll do it tonight. Mr. Nymon, Mr. Croton. JR is Mr. Okay. Taran Woodbeast. No, I think you'll find I'm Mr. Davros. Mm, he's not crap. No, but he did win pointless the other night. Oh, did he? What? Oh, the just Terry Malloy. Oh, Bobby no, Davros. Oh, no, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was a regular edition of Pointless with regular oh. people. Oh, I see. And they got into the final. There was an unfortunate-looking guy mm. with a third eye in the middle of his head. Mark, why don't you let me finish speaking, and then you can make the funnies. Sorry, Dad. Okay. It got into the final, and there were two people, and they chose their category, which was uh, fictional characters, and mm-hmm. a question came up, and the question was, name any recurring characters that are in the old series of Doctor Who and have also turned up in the new series of Doctor Who. Ooh. And the three choices they came up with were... Autons? No. Oh. Why Autons? How would they know Autons? They didn't know anything about Doctor Who. Well, they're Who. trying to go for obscure answers, aren't they? Mark, they didn't know anything about Doctor Who. They don't watch well, Doctor Who. they knew Davros. And it's well, also you only know that Not a species. <laughs> yeah, it could, be, uh, it could be either a named character or a species, Simon. Yeah. Oh, OK. Anyway, Jay, I'll carry on. Oh, dear. I don't know if I have the will to do it now. <laughs> They call it they, pointless for nothing. They came up with three choices. I can't remember what the first one was. It was something like Sarah Jane Smith or something. And the second hey, choice... I wouldn't call her a monster. No, re- characters, Mark. Characters. Oh, okay. All right, okay. Christ's sakes. Anyway, the three cho- and the second choice they came up with was 
They said, oh, K9? Was that in Doctor Who or was that in some mm. other series? I don't know. Okay, mm. let's say it anyway, just in case. So the second one they came up with was K9. And then just as they were about to get to the end of the minute, one of them says, oh, wasn't there a character called Davros or something? And unbelievably, Davros was a pointless answer. Wow. As were the Silurians. Mm. Uh, there were mm. seven pointless answers, I think. I'm trying to remember what they are now. Rassilon was one. Autons was one. I think. See, I would have won the money. Mm. Nestine Consciousness was one. The Macra? Yep, the Macra was one. And something else. Can't remember what the other one was. But there you go. Davros won Pointless. Wow. Never. And very sad. I was almost strangling the television. Two people (laughs) won the money on Pointless, knowing absolutely nothing about Doctor Who. (coughs) <coughs> just because one of them made a lucky guess. Unbelievable. Right, are we I wouldn't have do... said that would be point, pointless either, really. Of all Davros. the answers, I wouldn't have said that was pointless. Hmm. Well, it was pointless. But I suppose, I suppose yeah, and he appeared in one story, didn't he, So in the new series, mm. so that's that's very lucky, really. Well, to be honest, if those seven were pointless answers, that means the only ones that weren't pointless were Sarah Jane, K-9, Daleks, Cybermen, and Sontarans. Mm, mm. That's awful. Oh, and the Master, sorry. Oh, the master. and the Master, yeah. Mm. That is terrible. Should we do Noxbox? That original okay. idea, Noxbox. Oh, God, Mark. Are you just going to be like this all night? No. What's original about the idea of Noxbox? It's great. No one else does anything like it. It's amazing. Go on. I mean, no other podcasts do anything remotely close to Knox Box. Mm-hmm. Are you going to finish this train of thought this for is, all the people who listen this is to our podcast who something... won't know what you're talking about? Well, there's yeah. a podcast out there, I don't know if you've heard it, called Diddly Dumb. Mm. You might be vaguely aware of it. And uh, they do this thing called Docs Box. They do now, because one of the people on... The Diddly Dumb podcast is called Doc Whom. Yeah. They've only done it once, Mark, as just a little joke. Ah. Uh. Okay, Noxbox, are we going to sing mm. our way in? Yes. Okay. Yep. Three, two, one. Noxbox! That was the worst we've ever done it. Uh, this is week 13 of Noxbox. And this week he's watched another four episodes. Mm. Grant Nock, our man on the ground, re-watching the Stephen Moffat era so that we don't have to. And the first of the four episodes he's watched was The Rings of Akaten. He says, he says, I wasn't too keen on this the first time around, but a rewatch has suddenly shown me a world of pleasure of which I was hitherto unaware. One of the finest stories of the past eight years. Can you believe that? I'm in disbelief. I've had that experience yeah. a few times. Okay. Yeah, okay. I have to point out at this juncture that, you know, a couple of weeks ago I said that I was going to sack him and rewrite all his columns myself. Mm. <laughs> That's actually what I did. He didn't write that in at all. I wrote that myself. He actually wrote The Rings of Akaten, a weak story. I can't no. stand all that most important leaf in human history nonsense and the Doctor on a bloody bike again. I don't know why that bothers me so much, but it does. Matt Smith seems to be treading water a bit now. 
Now, do you want to know what he said about Cold War or what I said about Cold War? Well, we already heard <laughs> what you said about Cold War. Yeah, that is fair enough, actually, isn't it? I was going to make some crap up, but never mind. Okay, Grant Nock said about Cold War, an old-fashioned, base-under-siege story, hardly groundbreaking, I know, but enjoyable nonetheless. The submarine sets are fantastic, as is the new Ice Warrior. Still not sure about it popping out of its suit, though. I seem to remember us all being very depressed when we did our review of that one. Well, we ended up reviewing the wrong story by accident, didn't we? We did Dalek. Oh, yeah. <coughs> Easy mistake to make. <clears throat> yeah, that's what we... Oh, Ice Warriors, that was also a recurring character, wasn't it, in uh, Pointless? So oh, obviously yeah. somebody remembered them as well. Okay, Hide, an atmospheric spooky story. I like the design of the monster and the direction in the pocket dimension forest. Supporting cast are good, but I'm not sure about the great, 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 great granddaughter and monsters in love stuff at the end. Mm. Which is fair enough. And Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS. I like all the stuff with the TARDIS going a bit mental and the monsters reveal of them being the character's future selves. Nice design, too, but the plot resolution being a reset button is a little too on the nose. Supporting cast are poor. And what is the point of the one brother becoming an android for a joke? I do not know. Very bizarre. And then he do says... What? And then Go he on, says... Sorry. Nearly there, JR. Only a couple of more weeks, and then you can properly fire me. I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> Do you know what? That's the nearest I've got to completely agreeing with him. Oh. Mm, even on Journey, on a lot of the points on Journey, I think I probably liked it more than he did, but I do agree on the the resolution and also supporting cast were pretty awful. And the, and the Android bit didn't sit right with me at all either. The Android bit was weird, mm. but then... <clears throat> And I don't, I don't think you're supposed to take it all that seriously. No. <coughs> I've had a bit of a cold and I've got a bit of a frog in my throat. Apologies. <clears throat> but by introducing the Android thing, it allowed the writer to say a few things that he wouldn't otherwise have been able to say. Mm. So as well as being something that was perhaps there for a bit of fun, it also had a purpose behind it. Mm. Mm. But as it's... for the supporting cast... I thought they were fine. I thought that was decent performances. And if they seemed a bit wooden and a bit, you know, not very bright and all the rest of it, I think that's what the characters were supposed to be like. They were written, wasn't it? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. <coughs> the main guy, the main um, uh, actor, the one that was in so solid hustle, yeah, yeah, uh, was was he was fine. He's great. It was the other two, but. If, as Ashley you say, they're, they're supposed to be a little bit almost like um, Deep South. They're not supposed of, to be uh, very bright, are they? One of them doesn't realise he's not an android. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to... <coughs> you know, these aren't characters from War and Peace. More like Father Dougal from Father Ted. Exactly. Mm. Uh, we'd better come out of Nog's box. <coughs> I have to say... If there's a... any... Backward singing this week. Whoever does the backward singing will be suspended <laughs> and will not be appearing on the next episode. Can I just say before we back out of Knox Box, I am very much looking forward to the reaction to his review of Nightmare and Silver. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You ready to come out? 
Yes. Yep. Okay. Three, two, one. Dogs knob. Excellent. That's better. <clears throat> Hopefully, the fact that all three of us are singing together will disguise what I actually sang. Yeah, um, I heard it. <clears throat> you heard it. Outrageous. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, we have an email, and then we can get into the subject. But I quite like this email, so I'll read it out loud. Uh, it's from Weird Bean. <coughs> Dear, I'm really struggling with this frog, sorry. <clears throat> Hello, Weird Bean. Hello, Blue Boxers. I've just listened to Podcast 104 on Gallifrey, and very good it was too. Especially the seamless moment that Lee and Simon made up for JR's absence. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard this, Mark? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> that was the... We got to that bit, and Lee, Lee and Simon are saying, that's all right, you can edit this bit out afterwards. And then they keep talking, and then they ask each other questions. And every time one asks the other one a question, he says, yeah, you know, well, this is what I thought of it. You know, it's so weird with JR not here, isn't it? And then carries on his sentence. How am I supposed to edit that out, Simon? How was I supposed to edit that bit? You know, I'm no magician here. So either the entire conversation disappears, and then when I come back in and you tell me what you've been talking about, that bit of the podcast is entirely missing, or else I had to yeah. leave the entire bit in. Yeah, but I have you know to those say, three you brothers. Most... You... you know those three brothers in Journey to the Center of the Tardis, <laughs> and they're making this journey into Doctor Who with the Doctor accompanying them. So you've got one really intelligent guy and three uh... really not very bright guys. Do you know what I'm saying here? Sadly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh dear, we're just going to autopilot. No, but I have to say, Jr., that your masterful editing of the. Um the John Pertwee uh, series that you, you did recently, the one that I missed out on. What was it? Season... Oh, Season all the Day nine. of the Daleks. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened to that podcast, and some of your masterful editing <laughs> in that was brilliant. Masterful editing. I'm sure there's some bits where you'd... I think whether the recording had gone a bit funny and you'd replaced some of your own words and recorded them afterwards. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't yeah. know what happened there. My... They were brilliant. No one would ever know. Oh, you could tell. No. Don't be funny. You could tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could tell. You could brilliant. tell. Yeah, but it was either that or leave a blank space. I know, yeah. No, it's all right. You could just hear you um, pressing pause on the T90. But Simon, nothing you can say can upset him at the moment because he's got an extra spring in his step because he's completed his Weetabix car collection. So he's now a very happy man. I know, I know. Well, like mm. I say, he sang the intro. Yeah. Mm. Just like Dennis Waterman. More like William Shatner, I think. As long as it's not Phil Collins. Um, Yeah. We have a joint hatred of that man, don't we? Absolutely right. Weird Bean continues. But you got me thinking, which is always dangerous, especially when it's about Eric... Sorry, I had my JR filter on then. I meant Eric Sayward. In the comments about Trial, you, by which I mean JR, suggested that Sayward had tried to save the show by repeating the Trial motif used in the War Games, but I'm not sure his intentions were ever to save the show. After all, his original ending to the story had the Doctor left, well, possibly dead. Now, that's not to say that I think a that I think A-Hole was consciously... A no, Sayward 
was consciously attempting to kill off the show. More that Sayward's worldview seems immensely bleak and fatalistic. Attack of the Cybermen, anyone? Re Revelation of the Daleks? I'm sure that outwardly he was trying to save the show, but did he really want to? And based on his somewhat out-of-the-blue resignation and subsequent outpouring of vitriol, I think it's safe to assume that working on Doctor Who was never easy for him, and he seems to have felt trapped in his role. Script editor must be a tremendously difficult job, especially with little experience, and on a show as wild and varied as this, before even considering scheduling issues, managing writers, etc. Also, the fact you don't get on with your producer. Well, you got on with him at first, Mark. Hmm. Also, Sayward never really seemed to get the Doctor or know how to use him in a story. Attack of the Cybermen, anyone? Revelation of the Daleks? Companion <laughs> companions can die. The supporting cast often do. In Sayward's stories, most of the supporting cast might as well wear red shirts. Attack of the Cybermen, anyone? Revelation of the Daleks? But not the Doctor. He just goes on and on. So was Trial, Sayward's subconscious attempt, subconsciously attempting to set himself free from the prison of Doctor Who? <clears throat> okay, that's a bloody silly question, as there'll never really be an answer to it. Mm -hmm. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, even if this is just guesswork and pop psychology on my part. Anyway, I'm all thunk out, so I'll just finish by saying 104 was another great podcast. So thanks all for continuing to be entertaining, interesting, and thought-provoking. Weird Bean. Thank you very much. It's very Thank kind you. of you to yeah. say so. That's not what he asked. He said, was Eric Sayward subconsciously trying to kill the show off in order to, in order to manage his escape from it? Ah. Mm. Uh, I don't think he was. Do you know what I think he was doing? Mm. I think he was trying to be really clever. I think he was trying to be doing what they do now, where you have a cliffhanger at the end of a season that doesn't get resolved until the start of the next season. Mm. And it's a better way of bringing back the Doctor than just <clears> having <throat> him being knocked over by a lightning bolt and lying on the floor with a ginger wig. Nicely, Mark. You can explain him coming back as someone different without having to necessarily Mark, have the continuity. at the point they were making Trial of a Time Lord, they didn't know that Colin Baker wouldn't be coming yes, back. Yes, I know that, but if the series was in doubt, which it was at the time, and they didn't know whether they would get another series, it leaves it open for somebody else to come in. Yeah, well, I think Eric Saywood, knowing perhaps that the series was in doubt, was trying to guarantee its future by leaving it on such a cliffhanger that the BBC wouldn't be able to cancel it. Mm. Whereas John Nathan Turner was worried that was going to be exactly what they wanted. Exactly. And John Nathan Turner, being the producer, and perhaps known a little bit more about how the BBC Internal works politics. Yeah, than Eric Sayward does, I think John Nathan Turner would have a better idea and therefore was probably right to knock it on the head. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have had those three years that came after it because, let's face it, the viewing figures for Trial of a Time Lord were disastrous. Mm. <coughs> oh, that's me coughing again. Uh, are there two got anything more to say about that? Uh, no. No, I, no. I, I mean, I get the feeling when you see interviews with Eric Saywood that, yeah, he did. he does give the impression he was trying to do something clever with it. He doesn't... He doesn't say, oh, well, that was just another story. He always has to, you know, elaborate about what he was trying to do and that sort of thing. So there was obviously more going on in his head. 
as a as a writer and what he was trying to do. But um, I get the impression he wanted to do something different, but I'm not sure it was necessarily the right thing. right for right for Doctor Who. No, because he came from that background of doing sort of gritty sort well, he, of detective dramas and stuff, didn't he? Eric Sayward. No, he didn't have any background at all. He'd written two radio plays, which were. Um, set in the Middle Ages and involved the character that he had in Richard Mace in The Visitation. That was it. He just liked the Sweeney. He didn't have any experience of working on it. (laughs) So how exactly did they get the job again? Well, I think it was one of those things. Somebody played one of his radio plays, John Nathan Turner. Christopher Bidmead has left. There's no uh, script editor in position. Anthony Root's there on a three-month or six-month attachment. But he's not staying on. He's not doing any creative work. He's just literally doing the nuts and bolts of the job. Somebody throws the radio play in John Nathan Turner's direction. He says, yeah, that's not bad. That's quite well written, nicely characterised. Let's get this guy in and see if he fancies writing a Doctor Who. So they bring Eric mm-hmm. Sayward in and say to him, you know, yeah. they say to him, uh, oh, what's the word when you spin somebody a story? Uh, make a pitch. They said to him, pitch a story. So Eric Sayward, the night before he goes in, says to his girlfriend, oh, I've got the call to go and pitch a story for Doctor Who, but I've never seen it. And she says, oh, I saw one ages ago, set in the Middle Ages, where this alien crash lands and he can't escape, so he has to fix up his spaceship. And meanwhile, you know, lots of people die and all this kind of stuff, and the Doctor saves the day. And Eric Sayward goes in and pitches that story. Hmm. Mm. Which is why The Visitation is almost a remake of The Time Warrior. So there you go. That's mm-hmm. the story of how Eric Sayward got the job on Doctor Who. And they all lived happily ever after. <clears throat> and the rest is history. <laughs> Not really, oh, eh, Mark? No. For a little while, though. They did make... They did, you know, to be fair to them, they did make season 20. Okay, we're talking about crap monsters tonight. And we had loads of suggestions from people. And what I was going to do was try and come up with a top ten of the ones that people suggested. But two things went wrong there. Do you know... Okay, the two things that went wrong were... A. Not enough people voted that we could actually have a top ten. Because... (laughs) Because... B. They all voted for the same ones. No! That's exactly the problem. If they'd all voted for the same ones, Mark, we'd at least have an idea. Okay. They all voted for different ones. So we have got about 50 monsters, all with one vote each. (laughs) Well, I might exaggerate, but that's pretty much how it went. So, to be fair to all the people that voted, what I've done is I've taken all the suggestions they made that got multiple votes, and I've included them in the list, and then I have made up a list where we've got one monster for each Doctor, Mm-hmm. So that's ten monsters, because obviously yep. Eighth Doctor doesn't count in this. That's clever, that is. That's maths. Mm. And also the War Doctor doesn't count in this either, I suppose, does he? Oh, so we've come not up, really. I've come up with a list of ten monsters, which includes the ones that got the multiple votes and several others. And what I've done is I've not necessarily picked the absolute worst monster for each Doctor... Well, I've tried to pick ones that say different things about the how and the why of crap monsters coming about. So we've got a, well, what I think is an interesting list to go through. You might disagree by the end of the evening. (laughs) 
And we've also got a bunch of people's sort of short messages about the monsters they don't think are very good. And so to be fair to all of those people who wrote in, and to be fair to all of their suggestions, I think we should have a suggestion, and then do a monster for a doctor, and then another suggestion, and carry on and so on and so forth, like that. So I'm going to start off with uh, Mark Whiteley's suggestion for the worst Doctor Who monster ever. Mm -hmm. He says, The worst monster Doctor Who has ever seen is River Song. Horrible. Just horrible. Give me a whole season of the Merca any time. And Chris Forjak says, As a lifelong fan, I've generally had no problem suspending disbelief. Even the Hartnell and Troughton stories were no big deal. I just bought into all of it. However, as I continued through the stories, the Vardens were the major exception that I can immediately recall. They were the literal tinfoil monsters that were too dreadful even for me to believe in. <laughs> so there you go. The Vardens and River Song. <clears throat> and one of those made it into our list of ten. I shall leave it till later in the podcast for you to find out which. Mm. Okay, the other thing is, <clears throat> in this month's edition of Starburst magazine, issue 401, available at a good news agent's near you, <laughs> well, because I knew we were doing this podcast, I did a column to tie in. And it's available to download cross promote as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It we should, we should cross-promote it. Yes. What do you mean you should start cross-promoting? Here I am cross-promoting it, Simon. Starburst Radio, the official radio show for Starburst, the world's longest-running magazine of sci-fi horror and fantasy. Hello and welcome to Starburst Radio at Fab Radio International with me, Mike Royce, and Chris Hayes, the editors of the world's longest-running magazine of cult entertainment. Starburst Magazine, available from a newsagent near you today <laughs> we don't really talk, weirdly we don't talk about the magazine that much do we mm. no i know we kind of we're representing it in that respect we're we're mm. cross-promoting but we don't tend to talk about what's in the magazine every now and again you might mention oh in my article da 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 but well, there's a reason we... there is a then. reason i don't talk about the magazine and that is because the editor gave away my real first name last week so i'm not very happy with them at the moment yeah. Yes, not very happy at all. No. <clears throat> but I'm. I expect I'll get over it. What do you think? <laughs> okay. I think Josephine's that unusual a name for a bloke. Well, yeah. You could be a wrestler and be called Shirley, couldn't you? Yeah. Which part of the J and the R stands for Shirley? No, I'm just saying. But there's something stereotypically a girl's name. Oh, Shirley yes. Crabtree was Big Daddy, wasn't it? Shirley though, Shirley, though, like Hillary and other names of that ilk, was originally a fella's name before it became a girl's name. Unlike unlike Josephine, which is obviously the feminised version of Joseph. Right. So Mm. the J could stand for Joseph, but not for Josephine, if the R stood for... John Wayne was Marilyn, wasn't he? Was he Marilyn? Yeah. Hmm. He should have kept it. <clears throat> Marilyn was a very popular name amongst film stars back in the 1950s. <laughs> God, how They could have got we... confused. We've been going for half an hour and we've not even started. <clears throat> this is embarrassing. 
We've not even started. We had one email and we've not even started. Better crack on then. Okay, crap monsters. <clears throat> and what's our tenet for the show when we do uh, when we talk about stories? What do we always say? Nobody Try ever to find the good in the bad. Well, no, no, <clears throat> I don't, no, not necessarily. Try and find the good in the bad. Nobody ever sets out to do a bad job, right? Nobody ever says, nobody ever wakes up in the morning and says, <clears throat> do you know what? Doctor Who, Daleks, Cybermen, Ice Warriors, they've been doing all these brilliant things for years. What can I do to put a fly in their ointment? Nobody mm. ever gets up and says, right, I'm going to be the one responsible for making the kids laugh instead of running behind the sofas tonight. Everybody, whoever sits down and does a Doctor Who monster, thinks to themselves before they start, okay, my monster is going to be the new Daleks. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what everybody hopes, at the very least. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, in the column in the magazine, I talked a little bit about the Weeping Angels, which was kind of a, almost a throwaway thing that took off by accident. So we shan't go down that path, because we're here tonight to talk about the crap monsters. <clears throat> and I've split it up between the Doctors for a reason. The first Doctor, the crap monsters. Yep. Well, when Doctor Who was created, well, what did Sidney Newman say to uh, Verity Lambert about No bug-eyed monsters. Exactly. And then what happened? They had bug-eyed monsters. But not just bug-eyed monsters. What did they specifically have? Well, they had the Daleks. And when the Daleks appeared on the television screen, what did that mean for the series? It was never going to be the same again. And the reason it was never going to be the same again was because the Daleks were brilliant. The kids loved them, yeah. Everybody loved them. Uh, yes, specifically the kids, but I think even the parents loved the mm. Daleks. Because there just wasn't anything like them before or even since. They're no. unique. They're unique and they're brilliant. And actually, I made the point in the magazine, people are often decrying Terry Nation's part in the uh, creation of the Daleks mm -hmm. and saying, well, really, it's all down to um, thing Raymond, about Cusick. It. Raymond Cusick. But I made the point, yes, Raymond Cusick did the design, although according to the latest Diddly Dumb podcast, who came up with something I hadn't known, that mm. might not necessarily be true either, might it? Mm. But... The point was, Terry Nation had written in the script, had written a story about creatures that had become uh, mutated and could no longer exist, you know, in the outside world autonomously and needed to build themselves armoured tanks in which to exist. So if you take the idea of a tank, you know, something like a World War II panzer or whatever, mm -hmm. and start from that starting point and then redesign it, so that it's for one occupant, you're already starting to get quite close to what Raymond Cusick came up with, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. But we're not here to talk about Daleks. We're here to talk about the crap monsters for the first Doctor. <clears throat> Just quickly going back to that, so the special oh, on, weapons yeah. Dalek was the nearest thing, was almost going back to... The actual Panzer. Yeah. Yes. If, if there's not a band by the end of next week called Actual Panzer... There should be. Didn't he? Um, he had something to do with the bloke who chased windmills, didn't he? Actual Panzer. Yeah. The bloke who chased windmills. Uh, don't went around with Don Quixote. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <clears throat> okay, okay, moving on. 
Moving on. Lee's not here, and we've already had more, more tumbleweed moments. Trying to fill the void. No. No, you're trying to create a void. Every time one of you says something not funny, there is a void. We'll get to the end of this episode, and there'll be a bloody great black hole in Exeter. The first Doctor. Okay, so they set out with the notion of telling alternate alternating between stories in the past and stories in the future, okay? Mm-hmm. And the future stories are supposed to tell nominally science fiction stories, but not include bug-eyed monsters. But, having said that, once you've introduced the Daleks, that's never quite going to happen, is it? Yeah. So they start drafting monsters in, essentially. In fact, the very second... And this is the one I've chosen, actually, the Vord. But it makes no difference. I also put down sensorites and monoids. Once you've... Once you've... Uh, no. The second story that was set in the, on an alien planet or in the future was Terry Nation's second story, right? Mm-hmm. The Keys of yeah. Mariners. Yeah. So, uh, Terry Nation has had this enormous success with the Daleks. But at the point he's writing The Keys of Mariners, he has he no idea. No. Yeah. And even if by the time he gets to finish writing Keys of Mariners, he's becoming aware of it, it's really not that far away, and he's not got time to change much. In The Keys of Mariners, you essentially have a story where... And do you remember, at the end of the last episode, we laid down this as criteria, didn't we? We said... Oh, no, I think I did it in the magazine as well. We said... Nobody sets out to make a bad monster. Somewhere along the line, something happens. And in the magazine, I delineated it into uh, four different sort of points on the journey. The concept that the writer comes up with, mm-hmm. the design that the uh, designer produces from that concept, mm-hmm. and then the, the realisation of it. Yeah, which is, you know, actually making the costume. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the interpretation of it by the actor or actors who are playing the monsters. Yeah. So, if a monster is thought of in the Doctor Who pantheon as a crap monster, on one or more of those points, it's got to have failed somewhere. So, okay, if I say what happens in the Keys of Mariners, and we'll be able to say on which of those points it's failed, okay? That's kind of what I'm going to do here. Mm-hmm. Keys of Marinus. Terranation comes up with a story. He's probably not actually been told no bug-eyed monsters, but he's certainly not been asked at this point to bring a monster in, and Verity Lambert might very well have said to him, look, we just about got away with monsters in the first one, perhaps better avoid that in the next one. He essentially writes a story set on this planet, Marinus, where <clears throat> we get to see Unlike most of the other planets we go to, we get to see the different seasons in different Mm. continents and all that kind of thing. And his story is about the humanoid inhabitants of the planet Marinus, right? They're more like an alien race rather than being an out-and-out scary monster. Well, no, Mark. More than that, my point was about to be, Mm. when it was written, the Vord were just humanoid characters like every other person we meet on that planet. Mm. Surely... And right at the last minute, they say, oh my god, Daleks, big success, what can we do with Mariners? Oh, I know, the bad guys, who are just exactly the same as everybody else on the planet, let's just randomly make them monsters. Because (laughs) there is nothing else 
in that story to suggest that these two species would be coexisting on this planet in harmony, right? Mm. <clears throat> because in order for the Vord to sort of have the access and all this kind of other stuff that they would have, and to sort of share an intelligence with the mm. humanoid characters, they would have to be the humanoid characters. It's basically like saying, right, we've got this story, it involves a bunch of people from Ireland and a bunch of people from Brazil. And yeah, it turns it's just two out, different cultures, isn't it? Yeah, it turns yeah. out that Brazilians are the villains in this story, so we'd better make them monsters. It's wow, just... can you imagine if there had been a monster called the Brazilian? <clears throat> I can imagine what it would look like. <laughs> Probably very much like the Vervoids. Oh! <laughs> Can't believe I said oh, it. No. You've fallen into the void, JR. I Do have. yourself now. <clears throat> oh, I know. I did rather lead you up to it, though. Yes, you I, did. I must be in the minority. Cause I you think led me up the garden cool. path. <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse. It gets worse. I think the boards are pretty cool, actually. I, actually, I think I'm probably the only person who does. I don't dislike them for what they are. Hmm. Do you know, in and, theory, they're, they're actually a good idea. This side of them, idea of them slipping in and out of shadows. That's, that's yeah. the idea. I mean, essentially, they're an alien form of frogmen in the SAS, aren't they? Yeah, and in I'm not fact, trying to be if, funny. I'm just saying that that's the idea that they are supposed to slink hmm. around and, and sneak up behind yeah. people, which is what they do. But And actually, if it wasn't for the fact that they'd given them that funny kind of antenna on the head, yeah. you could just about get away with saying, well, that is what they are, frogmen in Balaclavas. Is that the idea that you could try and differentiate between the characters so they didn't all look the same? Oh, well, that little um, insignia the antenna on the top. thing on the head. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I had to draw a Vord, and I was look, going through all the photographic reference and that. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And they've all got different symbols. I think one's got a cross, and one's got like a V shape. And they did something similar with the sensorites, didn't they? Later, they had different sashes and stuff, so you could tell them apart. Mm. Oh, that was absolutely ridiculous. I was about to get to that, <laughs> but we've said that on this podcast before. Yeah, it's <clears throat> you know the story behind the sensorites the the plot is not actually too bad. I quite mm -hmm. like the idea that it turns out that the villains are the humans who yeah. are only being the villains through like a misunderstanding or whatever, yeah. right? It's not deliberate villainy. But that Just idea... Dull. Yeah. But that idea for the story itself is not too bad. No. And then Peter Newman throws in this ridiculous plot twist where there's this conspiracy among the sensorites and one of them steals a sash from another one and they can't recognise each other without the sashes. Mm. How absolutely <laughs> crazy is that? <laughs> and the worst thing of it is that the the people playing the sensorites are all wearing slightly different masks from one another. So even mm. as a human mm. being, you can tell <laughs> yeah, the sensorites apart. Different from the other one. Yeah. So how the sensorites could not tell... That would be... Well, that would be like having an Irishman and a Brazilian and asking the German, uh, you know, writing the German like you can't tell them apart. JR, this is like starting to sound Charles... like a UKIP manifesto. <laughs> well, Charles oh, Darwin God, turning no, up. No, Mark. Charles Darwin turning up at the Galapagos and saying, oh, you can tell the iguanas apart because they're all wearing different sashes. And they've evolved oh, that way where they all yeah. wear a different sash. Hmm. Or, or worse still, Charles Darwin turning up on the. the <laughs> Galapagos had not been able to tell the difference between the iguanas and the tortoises. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the monoids. <clears throat> we're going to have to hurry through these because otherwise we're going to be here, you know, for about three hours. 
And to be honest, to be fair, there's not a huge amount to say. The monoids as well, it's a it's not a bad idea for a story, but mm. they kind of do something similar with the monoids as they do with the sensorites, in that they make them a species where there's no differentiation between the members of the species. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have evolved to the point at which they had intelligence and were able to communicate if they couldn't tell each other apart. Because if you can't tell one another apart, yeah. what's the purpose of communication? You know, apart mm-hmm. from the most simple communication, food that way. But as soon as you get beyond the level of communication of food that way, you know, it establishes that your species must be a species of individuals because mm. otherwise you'd have nothing to converse about. Presumably the food was in the, safe, the um, security kitchen. Uh, but the point with those stories is, with the Vord and with the Sensorites and with the Monoids, is that in all those stories, either the writer didn't appreciate or didn't care about enough to sort of think deeply enough about mm. the characters in his stories to realise that actually those things don't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for the Vord to be monsters rather no. than human beings. It doesn't make any sense for the Sensorites not to be able to recognise each other and Monoids, there's a kind of similar thing going on in their culture where the mm. writer hasn't recognised them as individuals. At the uh, bit in the arc where they reveal the um, the big statue to be the Monoid, that hmm. is pretty cool and it's kind of iconic. Oh, yes. But, so there is something about them, but, yeah, it's just... The, 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 phys- quite the physicality of them doesn't work as well as it should. I mean, it, you could argue the same point with a web planet, that certain things don't happen, but I think the fact that we're trying some very different things... I, I wonder with the Vord whether the decision for them to be in rubber suits is all so you can have this this scene with the fact that the acid had got into the ship and all you got left with is, you know, almost like a melted body. Mm. Well, I think um, they would have just had the clothes there, you know? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it looks... Maybe. It, it maybe works. That's too horrific, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it probably could have been. I'm, You know, with all these things, there are always slightly different ways you can do these things. And let's face mm. it, Doctor Who had some pretty horrific stuff in it earlier. There's, in the very first story, there's people cracking other people's skulls mm. open with rocks. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other thing with the monoids is this this idea of the the actors didn't they have the eye where the mouth was and they were supposed to move the eye with the mouths? I mean, yes. that's that's the sort of thing I'd come up with. It is pretty ridiculous. I say that like it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it know, was a, it's lateral it was, thinking. It was a yeah. cheap and easy. It was a cheap and interesting way to do it. But as the designer sits down to write to do you know do the design for the monster, if he's going to say something like Okay, they're called monoids, they've only got one eye. Oh, I know what would be really interesting if we put the eye in the mouth. The designer also then has to have enough intelligence to say, okay, but the creature still needs to eat. There's a reason we have eyes above the mouth, you know, so that we don't dribble food into our eyes as we're eating. The <laughs> eyes go above, you know? There's a reason. What it made me think of is those, you know, when people draw faces on their bellies? Mm. <laughs> they, yeah. They, I mean, just as well to do that, really. But here's another point. Uh, talking about the monoids. Okay, the writer, the designer, anybody could have pointed this out. Somebody said, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if we did a species with only one eye, right? Yeah. Okay, nature 
does not make species with one eye, and there's a very good reason for that. Either of depth you two name me. Yeah, no depth of field. No depth of field means no safety. And, it, you know, from the purest, earliest point in evolution, you need depth of field in order to be able to hunt. You need depth of field in order to be able to defend yourself. So a species with only one eye does not climb the evolutionary ladder because it can't look after itself. It can't eat and it gets eaten. I mean, can can either of you to name me off the top of your head any species which has only one eye that has evolved on this planet, even right at the bottom of the food chain? Hmm. Not off the top of my head, no. Okay, let's move on then. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to have seen some monoids walk into walls and stuff. Though. That would have been funny. <clears throat> Do you know what was interesting during this whole period is that you've kind of got a dichotomy going on here. You've got people writing future stories where they're throwing monsters in pretty much for the sake of it because they think by this point that they need creatures every now and again in Doctor Who to keep mm -hmm. the kids watching. So they're kind of throwing things in like the sensorites and the monoids and, you know, the whole web planet thing. Uh, we're not going to do web planet this week. We mm. talk about it another time because everybody knows about the web planet. And I wanted to make it slightly more interesting than just going over that old ground. But the other thing that's going on during this whole period is you have had this massive success with the Daleks. And by by having this massive success with the Daleks, you're in a position where you've got a Dalek story twice a year. You know, people moan about how many Dalek stories there are now. Back in those days, for six weeks, once every six months, you had a Dalek story. You know? And so you are coasting on the wave of success of the Daleks. But at the same time, you don't want to throw all your eggs into that one basket. Mm. So, so you're you've also. For the next big thing. Yeah, you're not looking necessarily to replace the Daleks. And the first move they made was quite an interesting one in that. With the mechanoids, Terry Nation, uh, perhaps at the behest of the production office, because I think even by then it's starting to become pretty obvious that the Daleks are head and shoulders, pardon the pun, above all <laughs> these other monsters. The point being, you know, there was if the Daleks had come up in a war against the Sensorites or the Monoids or the Vord or whoever, it's going to be an entirely one-sided battle, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you're essentially saying is wherever the Daleks go in the universe, the Doctor has to be there, otherwise they win. So you kind of need to come up with a nemesis for the Daleks that can be the sort of opposite and antithesis. Mm -hmm. And so Terry Nation comes up with the Mechanoids. Mechanoids are not going into the crap monsters pile, even though they're not especially good, because as a first attempt, they're actually not that bad. Mm -hmm. But the point is, that kind of leads on to, well, to a certain extent, the Cybermen, mm -hmm. which is, I don't know how um, overtly the Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis and uh, producer uh, Peter Bryant were thinking, okay, we ought to think of something to come up to, to either be a replacement for or an equal to the Daleks. But with the Cybermen, they probably by accident hit upon it, right? Mm -hmm. And although, in my opinion, the Cybermen aren't anything like the equal of the Daleks, I would be being disingenuous if I said that that was true of everybody. You know, Doctor Who is a two-monster series. The yeah. two classic iconics are the Daleks and the Cybermen. So probably purely by accident, they've been really successful. 
But then Terry Nation is threatening to withdraw the rights to use the Daleks. Mm -hmm. And the Cybermen, as good as they are, and as almost iconic as they are, they're not the Daleks. No. You know, the Daleks are one thing, and the Cybermen are something else. And the thing that's most successful about the Daleks is that distinctive look. So you get to the middle of the Patrick Troughton era, and what's the next thing that happens? They have to start looking for something to be a surrogate Dalek, not just in terms of popularity, but in terms of how they fit physically into the series. Mm. So all of a sudden, you're starting to get monsters that are pretending not to be men in suits, but that are still robotic, and that are supposed to be the next Daleks. And we got two, and the one I've named <clears throat> is... Uh, well, would you like to guess the one I've named, Simon? The Quarks. And you've guessed the Quarks because I actually told you earlier, didn't I? <laughs> I forgot. Well, it's going to be that one. of the Crotons, wasn't it? Well, that's you the reason the I asked Simon because he's Mister Croton, isn't he? Yeah. Well, yeah. If you're talking about, mm, yeah. Well, I mean, think public perceive things. If somebody chooses which one's worse, the Quarks or the Crotons, I think the Crotons probably win. They've got a bit more depth to them. And yet, the, if we go back to that four-stage thing, sort of the concept, the design, the uh, mark, my head's not working, what was the word we used for the third bit? Realisation. Concept, design, realisation, performance. Where do the crotons fall down? The design. Design. Oh no, what's wrong with the design? They look nice from the waist up, from the waist <laughs> down, they look utterly ridiculous. I can't remember what they. I, I my mind's blanked that out. It's like um, like a newsreader. I don't even think about what goes on below the waist. <laughs> and <laughs> and the performance is pretty awful too. They are waddling around the place like ducks. And I have to be honest, the, the quarks aren't much better, are they? The real well, we'll come to the quarks and say. I was going to say the realization of the crotons is not especially good either. I don't think I can. You can see where they were getting at and. You know, they were almost there, but you've got to be honest. It looks like a pyramid-shaped goldfish bowl on top of a bunch of cardboard boxes painted in a dark colour, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not brilliant. It's not It's not the worst thing you've ever seen in Doctor Who. But if you, you know, if you line the crotons up with all the other monsters that have ever been in the series, they would not be the scariest-looking monster, would they? No, but they are mm, unique. No. In what way? I just think they're unique in the way that they're kind of angular and, and just the shape of them. I just like them. They kind of look Art Deco. They are a bit Art Deco. Like the Robots of Death, you mean? <coughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, predating the was, Robots of Death, can I just That say? was a cheap shot. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Quarks, then. The re uh, the reason I've chosen the Quarks as the failed monster of the Patrick Troughton era is because, unlike the Crotons, where I, I think it kind of went wrong after the concept, and I accept that they look quite nice, but not in a good way, you know. <laughs> I think the Crotons are one of those monsters you could love to hate, or there's a, like a bad film that's so I bad it's funny. I they're supposed to be crystalline, but I suppose the only trouble is they've gone completely not obvious really with they yeah. just look like cardboard boxes. They're not that much better than the war machines. Except 
They don't even run as well as the war machines. They waddle. Oh, they've got nice um, kind of uh, concertina arms, though. And I like the claws as well. I yeah, like but the... if they're crystalline, why would they have claws and concertina arms? Um, because they've got to move their arms. None of it works, Simon. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean... a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> well, things that are... Well, a car doesn't have any concertina parts, but it still moves. Yeah. What you're saying you know what is, so what you're saying is that the, the crotons are the bendy butt of the it's Doctor just, Who world. It's just thrown on there because somebody in the design department <laughs> thought it looked... You know, it was something new that they hadn't seen before and thought, oh, that looks futuristic. Let's throw that mm. on there. It's a bit like the bubble wrap in the Ark in Space. And it doesn't work. It's a bit like taking the doors off a 2CB. But with the Ark in Space, at least with the bubble wrap, they were... Yeah, that was something that hadn't really been seen... Yeah, but no, Very more than that, in the UK that, more point, than that Mark, logically it fit in with the story, <laughs> with the concepts that the writer had yeah. had. With the Crotons, the concertina arms don't fit in with anything. Mm. They don't fit in with the rest of the design. They don't fit in with the reason the creatures are there. They don't fit in with the sort of materials that the creatures are supposed to be made of. They just don't make any sense whatsoever. And this is why, if we get to it, I've chosen the Quarks. <laughs> We've already been going for an hour now, and we still haven't finished with the second Doctor. <laughs> we may have to make this a two-parter. I think we should go up to Doctor 5 and then make this a two-parter. What do you think? <laughs> we'll see how we go. Okay. Yeah, see how we go. Yeah, see how quickly we get through the next three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> the reason I chose the Quarks here mm-hmm. was because I think the concept works. They're functional robots, subservient, right? Mm-hmm. A, a monster that behaves like a robot that's not subservient to someone else, like the Sensorites, and like the Vord, and like the Monoids, has no reason to have evolved an autonomous existence. But the Quarks haven't evolved an autonomous existence. They are a subservient species created to be slaves to the Dominators. Mm. So that works. If you're going to have a robot in Doctor Who, it should be subservient to the species that created it. So it works. And the design of the quarks is not hideously awful. It's probably about on a par with the crow. It's quite an iconic silhouette. Yeah. You've got the spiky head and stuff. So that, it does, you know, it's quite striking. You know, you remember back to the Target novels and seeing the the cover and you think oh that's interesting the spiky head that Simon thought yeah. was unique to the crotons well I wouldn't say it's spiky on the crotons it's more <laughs> like a sort of the top of a the um, angular black pepper grinder that you twist the, so the design of the quarks is actually mm. not too bad right no I like the arms that fit in like drawers yeah. somewhere <laughs> in between the design and the realisation yeah you've got a slight problem in mm. that in order to make that design work you'd have needed a lot more expensive equipment because they don't move terribly great. Mm-hmm. But what sort of noise do they make again? Well, that's what it's I was about to come pitched, to. They've got little girls' voices or children's yeah. voices, and that's what really lets them down. Everything else you can just about believe, but could you honestly see a race like the Dominators <laughs> making subservient robots and giving them little girls' voices? <laughs> it just doesn't. You know, looking, seen, looking at them, I'd, I would have thought they would make this kind of gonk noises. You know, like, do you know what I mean by the gonk droid, the power droid in Star Wars? 
the one with just little little two legs, and it just looks around and goes gong, gong, like that. And I can imagine they would oh, work okay. just as well by doing that. They, you know, just as droids, basically. It'd probably be more intelligible because I could never really understand what they're saying. The quarks. It's yeah. very difficult, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, a bit like some of the early Cybermen, actually, are sometimes a bit difficult to yeah. uh, follow. Yeah. Hi, you can see what they were going for. And this is the reason why I've chosen the quarks and why I think it's more of a failure than the crotons because they almost got it right and yet, you know, just that one thing yeah. or one and a bit things at the end really lets them down. Mm-hmm. A bit like the Vord. I think if we've left the Vord as humanoids, I think that story works better because it makes more sense. And but one last thing on the Vord while you brought them up. Yeah. I remember reading about the whole the situation at Lime Grove when they're recording. They're saying it's so hot that it's setting off the sprinkler systems. What must those guys have been like by the end of filming? Wet on the outside, but at least they're wearing oh, yeah. wetsuits, so they don't need as much. If the temperature is that high, they're setting it off. I mean, God, yeah. it must have been absolute hell to wear that. Yes, yes, I'm just being funny. You're absolutely right. All oh, right, I was just being a funny bugger, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> Join the crowd. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's been one of those episodes tonight, hasn't it? It has a bit. Do apologise to sorry, listeners. Sorry, listeners. Yeah, we do usually record at the start of the week, but we're actually recording this at the end of the week. So we've and all it's had been a, a very long week. We've all had a full work, week of work. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So uh, when it came to the third Doctor, we've got an audience, a listener nomination now. So to try and make the best of it, in a way, because, you know, if I'd have gone through all ten choices myself, I'd have deliberately picked out monsters for specific reasons, like with those first two. Mm-hmm. But we'd, I didn't have that choice with this one. It's Alpha Centauri. A dick mm. and a shower curtain, that's all you need to say. <sighs> what? Move on. <laughs> what? Oh dear, we're back up the garden path, aren't we? But you know what? Of all the monsters in the John Pertwee years... Mm-hmm. Alpha Centauri is the one who gets the most votes. Only two votes, to be fair. But none of the other monsters in the John Pertwee years got even more than one vote. You know, none of them got more than one vote. Even the uh, rug on the Ogron planet at the end of Frontier oh, in God, space. Yeah. yeah, see, that, to me, is worse than Alpha Centauri. But, you know, Alpha Centauri actually is an interesting inclusion. I think it's a great character. I really do. Yeah. And so, actually, if you go back to those four elements, Mm -hmm. the concept, the design, the realisation, and the performance, what's the problem with Alpha Centauri? Well, I think the performance is great. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Performance is fantastic. Yeah. And the concept of having sort of a monopodal uh, creature doesn't make a great deal of sense unless, and you don't get to find out, but unless it comes from a, again, it's a monocular, this uh, creature, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't make a great deal of sense, but you could just about make a case for Alpha Centauri having come from a planet where it's, you know, only the bottom of the ocean life never evolves beyond being, you know, leeches and all this kind of stuff, and uh, mollusks and things like that. On a planet where the mollusks become the dominant intelligent life form, you could perhaps just about make a case for Alpha Centauri having become the sort of dominant species, yeah? Do you think they live on the same planet as the Vervoids? Mark, I was coming to that. 
<laughs> but I guess since you've come to it already. Oh. There That's you a go. Choice of words. Well. Yeah. Okay, so the other thing I was going to say about Alpha Centauri, apart from the fact that it looks great, I think it does. Mm. It doesn't move particularly well. It's memorable. It doesn't move particularly well, but the voice performance... Oh, yeah, actor's performance. Absolutely brilliant. That makes up for the fact that it doesn't move particularly well. I actually think it's really nice to look at. So in terms of the design, although it doesn't make a great deal of sense for all the reasons I've just given... You can get away with it in certain circumstances, right? Oh, you absolutely gutted that there wasn't a character options toy of it. Oh, there are lots of creatures I'm gutted that haven't been character options toys of, mm. and that is just one of many. I'm fully expecting a top ten of the ones that got away on your Facebook feed. Oh, do you think I should do that? I think so. You're right, yeah. I should, shouldn't I? Maybe you should get Simon or uh, one of your artistic friends to uh, make some little illustrations. So, so I'm gonna like. I'm gonna sit down and write a list, which is gonna take all of fifteen minutes, and then I'm gonna get Simon to spend yeah. about a fortnight making illustrations. <laughs> for them yeah, all. he hasn't got much on. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's gonna happen, isn't it? <laughs> I'll come up with a list, though. Okay, Mark, the top ten monsters that got away. Hey, David Adams, our listener, he's able to knock up little figurines. He's done an amazing Ian Levine one. Oh, you mean uh, in Photoshop? Yeah. I thought you meant in real life for a minute. No, no. no. Yeah, it's probably a way. You could probably cut them out from the series, from some screenshots and put them next to the others and do that. What's that photographic effect that makes things look like they're models? What's it called again? Oh, is the Model one? effect? No, no. It's to do with focusing. You put things on the... Without going into detail, you put things in, on the outer edge of the the, the picture in soft oh, focus they... and it makes... Yeah. You, they use a lot of adverts now, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, anyway. and they starting to use it more in dramas and things like that, actually. I know what you mean, hey, I don't know what it's called. What you want to do, JR, is find somebody who's really good at 3D modelling and get a 3D printer and make up your own. Well, oh, yeah. you can go into whatever the supermarket is. I can't remember what it is. Is it a supermarket or something like that? Tesco. Got them. Tesco do it, don't they? No, I don't think it is Tesco. It's something else. Or it might be, somewhere up north. And so what Morrison's. I was intending to do was um, mm. make lots of costumes for myself and just go up there and get myself <laughs> nice. 3D modelled in, into all these monsters. Somebody with, with SketchUp would do it for you, I'm sure. If Alpha Centura, it wouldn't be that hard to do, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> oh, mind you. The... Yeah, there is, there is a way. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking what I'm thinking, Mark. There's an easy way around this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Just lay, Ooh, would it be life? You just need to <laughs> lay lay down on the turntable and think nice thoughts, Joe. <laughs> you know the other point I was going to make about Alpha Centauri, though. Alpha Centauri, Alpha Centauri. I can never work out how you're supposed to say that. I would had, say Alpha Centauri, but yeah, I've already come up with three different pronunciations just in this episode of the podcast alone. The other interesting thing about it is, and we kind of come back to this when we get to the new series. It's just throwing a really strange one in there every now and again. Mm-hmm. You know, Doctor Who is this series that can go anywhere in time and space. And they they always come up with... The Doctor always comes up against things that are monstrous. Right? Mm-hmm. Things that are the kind of things that you would get in normal science fiction. Or yeah. normal horror films or whatever. That kind of but stuff. But weird doesn't always equal bad. 
No, weird doesn't always equal bad, and in fact, weird can often equal good. There's, mm. but the point is, uh, Alpha Centauri is one of the first occasions, and even if you look back at Mission to the Unknown and Dalek Master Plan, they're still all sinister monsters, right? Yeah, Alpha Centauri is one of the first, not not the first occasion, but one of the early occasions when very specifically they've thrown something in that's just unusual as opposed to monstrous. Mm. It's not really a monster; it's a creature, and it's very odd. It's very. I suppose weird. they go a little bit like that in Galaxy Four, don't they? <clears throat> they try and flip your conception of. Yeah, but the, the, the creature in the Galaxy Four is still the Rills, which is still very much a sinister monster in the monster type, even though it turns out to be the good yeah, guys. Yeah, they're good. My point is with the designs. Mm-hmm. If you, yeah, I know what you mean. If you've got an entire universe that's supposed to have sort of evolved in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways, apart from having monocular creatures, of course, which is just ridiculous. Well, they might okay. have some kind of sonar thing going on, as far as depth of field is concerned. You never know. But they'd be blind. Uh, if... Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. And even creatures like bats, which do use that, still have two eyes, because that's what nature makes. I think it used to get to me that Alpha Centauri didn't blink, because it used to make my eyes water watching it. He'd have like a big industrial-sized <laughs> bottle of eye drops, wouldn't he? <laughs> Alpha Centauri did blink, though, didn't he? I don't, don't think he did. Or was there? Or was there was minute movement was on the on the eyelids? No, I think he had the blink effect. Where the did he? Operator oh, God, it's inside. Been years the, since I've watched it. Eyelids. I could be wrong. Am I wrong, Mark? Do you remember? I thought I remember eyelids moving, but yeah, I think so. It's not one I revisit very often. CGI and I'm in. You know, the really interesting thing about that story as well is it also includes Arcturus. Yeah. Yeah. Which is this bloody great fish tank with this tiny little head at the top of it. Mm. And okay, See, that one always they... makes me think of the um, the Aspidistra in, in the adventure game. I'm, I, I swear to you, I'm not trying to be funny. Just for some reason, when I remember oh, yeah. Arcturus, the image of the, of the Aspidistra always comes into my head. I don't know why. Because it was just like a bowl of, a bowl of a plant on top of a column, wasn't it? It's the same thing. Doogie Rev. Yes. Gronda Gronda Rando. But the other odd thing about Arcturus, Arcturus is that <clears throat> they've built this thing with this fish tank with his head at the top, a little bit like Sil in Vengeance on Varos, and a little bit like Davros in Remembrance of the Daleks. I was thinking of uh, Max, Max Capricorn. What's his name from... Yeah. Max Capricorn. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. And the point with Davros in Remembrance and Max Capricorn in uh, Voyage of the Damned, is there's a reason there's a fish tank underneath, and that's because you need the actor's body to be somewhere. But then you go back to Sill, and once they've cast Nabil Shaban, there's yeah. no reason to keep the fish no. tank. You don't need that anymore, which is why he appears without it, of course, in uh, mm-hmm. Mind Warp. And then mm-hmm. you come back to Arcturus, and it's not even an actor in the fish tank, it's an animatronic head. What? <laughs> ah, it just, it kind of beggars belief. Maybe the designer designed the fish tank thinking they were going to put an actor in it. Well, it's like the little um, brains in... Um... Mofoton? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they're brains in jars and they are kind of yeah. odd, but... Mm. Anyway, Alpha Centauri, it's... Yeah. He's lovable. And actually, yes. Yeah. So why that would get two votes from our listeners, 
I yeah. How dare you? Yes. But you know, we'll be getting to the Nymon soon, Mark. No. <laughs> I'll tell you what, before we move on to the fourth Doctor, let's take a few more um, a few more notes from our listeners. Yeah, uh, the Reverend Captain Hollow Porro says, I find this really difficult, having to choose a crap monster, because from a design point of view, I can see what was trying to be achieved, but mm. budget and technology got in the way. This doesn't make it any the less a good design, and the concepts alone often make the creature great. The Fomasi are a great design, but realised in the wrong materials, for example. And he actually gave us his vote, five monsters. Uh, number one, he put the Interminorians from Carli- Carnival of Monsters. The grey-faced fellas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are terrible, aren't they? Yeah. And number two, the Argolins. Actually, I say oh, number two. God, this yeah. is not in any particular order. Do you know what? When Leisure Hive came on, and we'll get to Tom Baker in a minute, and we won't talk about the Leisure Hive, so might as well cover it briefly now. I just look yellow skin and yellow clothes and green hair, and <laughs> the design was so ornate. That nothing felt natural about the design. They didn't feel like a creature that could have evolved. They felt like a creature that came from the pen of a designer with too much time on their hands. Yeah, yeah. You've only uh, got to look at those drawings, haven't you, during the 80s? Um, you know, you used to get it in the annual, didn't you? Do you remember you'd get drawings of all like the Leisure Hive costumes and stuff? And it was. It was, it was, it was almost like... Ooh, it sounds bad, but somebody straight out of fashion college who was just kind of yeah. doing what the hell they wanted. And yeah. all about, it was all about how they looked, not what they projected, if that makes sense. It was, yeah, it was, all about, it was all about appearance rather than what they represented. Yeah. All style, no substance. Exactly, exactly. Well, that was the 80s though, wasn't it, really? Well, uh, Revs of the Choice is the Mandrels. We'll get to those in oh, a minute. Oh, they're cute. We'll get to the Mandrels in a minute. The Merker, which we'll also get to in a minute, mm-hmm. and the Slab. The what? Yeah, Simon, do you know what I'm talking about? I think I do. The Slab, yes, I do. Yeah. Oh. Go on. <laughs> the motorcyclists. Yes. <laughs> Basically. Oh, I'm glad somebody's voted for that, because I thought that was a bit naff. Well, do you know, well, yes and no. I can imagine that the Slabs wouldn't look like that on their home planet. They have come to Earth and deliberately disguised themselves as dispatch riders so they can get into the hospital. Mm. Right? Mm. That seems to me yeah. logical. Mm. Yeah, so you've no, I, got to yeah. assume that underneath the sort of... And in fact, he says they're made of solid rubber at one point, doesn't he? Or solid something, does he? The well, doctor? Something like that going on, yeah. Yeah. So they're a bit like the Autons in that if they're presumably made of a solid mass of this subject, they can presumably change their shape to resemble what they wish. And their natural form would therefore be something else. Or they've got the archway thing from Delta and the Bannerman, they just walk through and they look Yeah, It would have been, it would have been nice to see them melt then when the Doctor chucks a load of radiation into one. Budget, Just, just so you've got the... Yeah, mm, I suppose, yeah. Just, just something to make you realise that yeah, they weren't of this planet. Instead of just looking like a bloke in a motorcycle helmet falling over, but yeah, I mean they managed to recreate the moon. I would have thought they could make him melt, couldn't they? <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah. Because it's just that. Perhaps it is they couldn't that make easy. him melt because they'd spent that much money recreating them. I don't know, yeah. Simon. No, I don't know. Frank Almiles Mole gives us five choices as well. Erato from the Gridger from the Pit, right? We'll come to that. We'll come to that. Alpha Centauri, which we've just dealt with. Mm -hmm. Did you like that? Okay, forget about it. (laughs) Taran Taran Woodbeast, which we'll come to in a moment. Gel Guards. Do you know what, though? The the way they bobble up and down, okay, that's bad. I think they look fantastic. So do I. So do when I. I was yeah, a kid. Cool. Yeah, when yeah. I was a kid, I thought that they were one of the most alien and weird and exotic and dangerous looking things the show had ever come mm, up with. They look yeah. cool until they move and then they just look very silly. So well, much just... so that I've just spent 15 quid on eBay buying a second oh, gel guard to go with dear. the one I've already got so I can have two. Does your good lady know you are spending this sort of money on... Uh, no, I'd better keep my voice down. Action She's dollies. in the next room. Mm. Um, you want right. the high jump? <clears throat> no, I earned an extra 15 quid at work this week, so that's what mm. I went on. <clears throat> I think I said that loud enough. <laughs> and Frank Mole's final choice was the teddy bears from Survival, as he calls them. But, he Aww. says, to a kid, they're all great. Yeah. The thing is with those teddy bears, when you look at um, (coughs) promotional shots now and you see a group of them, you can see that they concentrated on certain ones. Some of them look really naff, but the main ones look really quite nice. Yeah, Mm. yeah, the close-up shots. They just don't... Back in the 80s, they just don't quite have the techniques yet to actually Mm. make them look like anything else other than people in costumes, do they? Because, No. uh, no, they do look... You know, you can tell. It's like some of the mon- Doctor Who monsters down the years, you've uh, almost been able to suspend disbelief for. I'm talking in the classic series. They're just doing their best with what they've got at the time, yeah. aren't they? I think in the um, new series. Limited budget as well. I think in the new series, they've actually managed it. Yeah. But in the old series, even the Zygons, you know, you can't quite accept that it's anything more than a person. But with some things, like the cats from Survival, it's just patently obvious it's a person in a suit. But they still look nice. Mm-hmm. They str- they struggle with that. With um, I always think with makeup making people look old. It's very very rare that it yeah. actually looks okay. Um, the David Tennant makeup in um, was well, it? Well, there's been a couple. No, no. And yeah. Human Nature. And Human Nature. Do you know what you need to great. do to um, make it work? Is put contact lenses in. Yes. That's the one thing they don't usually get. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. their eyes always look young. You're absolutely yeah. right. So if you put contact lenses in and just slightly fog the eyes, that creates the illusion that you're actually looking at an old person. Even if the skin doesn't look quite right, you can suspend disbelief better because the eyes are the where your focus lies. Mm. Mm. So that's Frank Carmel's Mel. And I think at the end where he says, but to a kid, they're all great. That's a great point. And actually, that's not a bad place to launch into the fourth Doctor. Well, the one that got the most votes in the fourth Doctor kind of sums up, in a way, all the rest of them. It's the Vardens. <coughs> the Vardens yeah. from the Invasion of Time. Yeah. Mm. Which is just kind of a shimmery effect thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Until they become people. 
Yeah. So actually, they're not really a monster at all. And Am I right this in is... thinking on the on the DVD you get an option to replace them, don't you, with CGI? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. With a different with a different shimmery thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is but this is what I really wanted to talk about for Tom Baker's Doctor, and it is all the monsters from the Graham Williams era. In the first three years of Tom Baker, you have got Philip Hinchcliffe throwing his um, budget projections out the window and just spending basically what he likes and using some really good designers. And I think they were still making the creatures outside the BBC at the time. I could be wrong about this. I don't know too much about it. But anyway, during the first three years of Tom Baker, almost all of the monsters are pretty good. Mm. There's not many that don't really work. In fact, the Wirren, off the top of my head, I think even the Kraals work really well in the Android Mm. invasion, and they're the ones that people often sneer at, but I think they're brilliant. But the point is then, you get to... Philip Hinchcliffe has inherited Doctor Who from Barry Letts, and Barry Letts very ostentatiously made it about the monsters. You know, this is the man who said, "Okay, we're going to do a story about giant spiders, right? You can't get more about the monsters than deciding to do a story about giant spiders. But then Graham Williams comes along. And whereas Philip Hinchcliffe has kept the monsters, but but adapted the situation so that each species of monsters has kind of a vaguely human spokesperson, as it were. Somebody for the Doctor to interact intellectually with, rather than having, like, the sea devils, where they could be just a race of ants for all the difference it makes. So, Graham Williams takes that a step further. Philip Hinchcliffe has been doing sort of monster movie pastiches, and Graham Williams doesn't want to do monster movie pastiches, he wants to do pastiches of classic literature, which very often don't feature monsters. But the the other side of this coin is, because obviously these pastiches of classic novels are only like one story in every four or five, In between, the thing that you've got going on in the Graham Williams era is that, conceptually, the writers are behaving in a much more literary fashion in that, with the concepts, they're actually, unlike in the William Hartnell era, thinking the concepts through and coming up with concepts that work on two levels. One, for a kid, is a monster. Great. Mm -hmm. And if the kid doesn't understand why the monster has evolved in the way it has, and I mean intellectually as much as physically, and and what it's doing in the plot, they can see it's a monster and it needs to be defeated, right? I think the first ones to come along like that, really, where they, in my opinion, they really thought it through to that great extent with the Draconians back in the Pertwee years. I thought they were a well-thought-out species, you know, just not just the, the culture and the sort of background they gave them, but also... They obviously seem to have like a joined up thinking between the designers and then the the people who had to mm. make it work. But they are successful. Mm. I was just I was kind of preambling to why I think the Vardens and the Mandrels and the mm. creature from the pit and the Nymon and so on and so forth aren't especially successful in the Graham Williams era, the Shrivenzal mm. and everything else, the Tarum Wood Beast. And the reason is, 
they're writing conceptually interesting stories, but they're not monster stories. Mm. Mm. In, say, Frontier in Space, since as as you brought that up as an example, and it's a great, mm. a great example to illustrate my point, the Draconians, they have a backstory because their backstory is part of the plot. Yeah. But you throw in something like the Mandrels in Nightmare of Eden, or the mm. Vardens in The Invasion of Time, since the Vardens are the ones that got the vote. Throw yeah. the Vardens into Invasion of Time. An Invasion of Time is really a story about a backdoor invasion of Gallifrey, right? Yeah. It's not about it being a monster. It could be It could be Germans and English, you know? Yeah. For all the and difference the Vardens could have been just people. It, as yeah, they, it wasn't... As, yeah. As they turn out to be in the end. Just people. Mm. So the point is not that there's a monster there, but the story itself is the bit that's intellectually interesting. The idea. So the monster is kind of thrown in to be a monster in the story. Mm. And so right from the off, those monsters are never quite going to work because none of them really have a place in the story. Mm. You know, the Varden should have been humanoid the Nymon should have been humanoid really that story kind of makes more sense if the Nymon are humanoid the mandrels should have been cattle mandrels would have made so much more sense if they'd have been on all fours and cattle right they stand up they start walking around anything that stands up and walks around once it's on two legs right going back to what i was talking before nature mm. evolution once it's on two legs, that means nature has evolved eh, something else for those four legs to do. Mm. You know, the opposable thumb and all this kind of thing. Mm. As soon as you have full use of your four legs, you develop art, for example, cave paintings. And this provides for an intellectual development for your species. The mandrels behave like cattle mm. and yeah. stand on two legs. Doesn't work. Naimon, Naimon, the original concept was that they were human beings who wore this great big bulbous cow's head to subdue and scare the people that they were invading. Mm -hmm. That, to me, makes brilliant sense. The fact that they didn't go with that is perhaps the one thing that lets the Naimon down. Because if they had gone with that, the fact that the design doesn't quite look realistic wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have been supposed to be realistic. Well, worked for me as a six-year-old kid. Scared yeah. the bejesus out of me. It was great. Well, this go. is the point. I think the story... Sorry, Greg, you're about to say... I'll just say this quickly and then we go yeah, silent. Go I was just going to say, the point is, this, these stories, although Tom Baker's kind of doing the undergraduate humour and everybody thinks nobody's taking it quite seriously, actually the stories in the Graham Williams era are probably the most intelligent stories Doctor Who's ever told. And even as a five-year-old, if you don't follow the story, you can appreciate, even at that unsophisticated level, that the story is doing something sophisticated, as long as you have a monster there to keep your attention, right? Yeah. So the monsters in the Graham Williams era are doing their job. They're keeping children interested in what's going on on the screen, and then he's telling a more adult story that um, the more grown-up children and the young adults and the adults watching at home can actually say to themselves, oh, do you know what? A, I can follow this story, which is where I think Doctor Who fell apart a few years later, but B, not only can I follow it, 
it's not insulting my intelligence and it has enough diversions not necessarily plot twists but diversions in the story to keep me wondering what's going to happen next like for example going back to nightmare of eden the two spaceships crashing together mm-hmm. and causing this sort of sort of pocket universe link between the two spaceships yeah it's a really interesting story and then mm. you throw the sort of electronic zoo in there as well my god that is by far and away the best story that bob baker's ever worked on yeah and then you throw in the undergraduate humor and it gets a poor reputation it's a brilliant story i love it i think it's a great story and i think you can say exactly the same about the invasion of time Poor special effect. Mm. Bad last two episodes, especially when they lost the budget. A really interesting idea. And those mm. first four episodes tell a really interesting political story. But the monsters are a bit crap because they're not mm. quite what's required. Simon, I talked all over you then. I think you're going to say no, something. It's fine. It's fine. I was going to go back to what we said before with the Nyman when we discussed them before is that the target cover it lets you know it's. It's all about a breakdown between the design, the design concepts, and the realization, and that's what lets it down. But um, going back to what you've talked about before, the um, oh god, I can never remember the name of it. The hypothetical agent hypothesis, or whatever was it? Hypothesis. The uh, oh, the literary agent hypothesis. Oh, the literary agent hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. If you go back to that, then you. If you take these aliens down to their basic concepts, particularly with the Nyman, because I think they're quite impressive. If you see them in silhouette with just the eyes and the horns glowing, I think they're great. Really good. Yes. I mean, essentially, they're minotaurs, aren't they? But I think they're great. And, um, you know, if you're going to look at the literary agent the hypothesis that it's just a representation of something that actually happened, then you kind of get past that, don't you? And actually, the glowing horns makes more sense if it's a mask mm. and a disguise intended to cow the populations of the planets yeah. they're invading. Yeah. I think I, a lot of people I know who have a problem with that story have more of a problem with Graham Crowden than they do with the actual yeah. monsters. Oh, and the story itself's also really interesting. And there's a yeah. brilliant twist in there. I think it's either at the end of the third or the start of the fourth episode where Romana works out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's a brilliant twist. I, yeah, Horns of Nymon... Vastly underrated. Fab in that hunting outfit as well. <laughs> oh yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story, but not very well realised. Mm. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Okay, we are definitely taking a half-time break and doing this as a two-part podcast now, because we're over an hour and a half already. So we are not going to carry on for three hours. We are going to do one more, and then we are going to leave the rest for next time. Or next time but one, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Okay, the last one that we'll do this week then. The Fifth Doctor. It got voted in, surprisingly enough. Can you guess what it is? Ooh, it's a tough one. Mm, Let me think about this. Uh, The Merker? It is the Merker. I love the Merker. Well, do you love it because it's good? He's cute. Well, that's not good, is it? If it's supposed to be scary. No, I mean... He's not helped by the fact that they still had wet paint on him when he was going around trying to savage people to death. The Merker. Do you know, when I came up with my list of ten monsters, I tried to think of a reason and a different reason for including each one in the list. Mm-hmm. And the Merker is a brilliant example of when you throw in something spectacular just for the sake of having something spectacular in your story. 
and on Doctor Who's budget, that is never going to work, is it? And I'm thinking The Creature from the Pit, and I'm thinking mm. Crawl. You know what I mean? I think it would have stood more of a chance if it wasn't so stupidly overlit. If they'd have it really sort of dark and gloomy, it would have helped a bit. It still probably wouldn't have got away with it. But didn't it would have really work for Creature from the Pit, did it? Mm. You know, the Creature from the Pit, there's that the long shot in Creature from the Pit where you look down into the cave and it's sort of in yeah. the background. Mm-hmm. I think that works really well. Yeah. It's just that when you get up close and personal with it, as Tom Baker did, just to carry on with tonight's <laughs> theme, <laughs> it becomes Blow really... Me. <laughs> it just becomes really obvious what it I is. I think they, if you can't really afford to do it on screen effectively, you have to take that sort of alien approach where you're using it sparingly and you're just getting glimpses rather than or better you know. yet or better mm-hmm. yet you write a different story yeah maybe or you know when i say a different story i mean don't mean an entirely different story but you know you could still re- write the creature from the pit and have it be a naimon that's down mm-hmm. in the pit it doesn't need to be the biggest creature ever that's down the pit it just needs to be something alien that lady adrasta didn't take to yeah so you know creature from the pit they go for something huge Mm -hmm. power of crawl i think works slightly better because i don't think the effects in that are as bad as everyone says but they're not perfect so design it's okay it's good as well but they're not perfect so it's not brilliant it could have been something else and the murka obviously you've already got the sea devils and you've already got the silurians in the story and not only that, you've already got the Silurians in the story as the sort of intellectual half of the species, mm. with the Sea Devils there to do their legwork. What the hell do you need the Merka for? The Sea Devils are already doing the legwork. Well, the thing is, the Sea Devils were sort of bumbling along and tripping over each other, and they couldn't really see where they were going, so they had to come up with something <laughs> vastly superior. Do you know what's really interesting about that? Everybody mm. talks about the Merka. Nobody ever brings up the Tyrannosaurus Rex that performed exactly the same function mm. in the Silurians yeah. and was even, even worse, if anything. Mm. And, you know, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, I suppose, is a case of the same point, throwing something yeah. special. Oh, God, yeah. They said, OK, let's do a dinosaur story. And actually, Malcolm Hogg is given dinosaurs and told, make a story up the with dinosaurs. The story's good. It's just... The story's brilliant. yeah. yeah. So it's not really a case of throwing the dinosaurs in for the sake of it. It's no, a case no. of building a brilliant story around them, mm, but still doesn't... unable dis- to realise it. Yeah, still doesn't disguise the fact that they can't do dinosaurs on Doctor Who's budget, so they shouldn't mm. try. Mm. And the Merka is just the latest attempt to do dinosaurs on Doctor Who budget and fail. Well, was it Johnny Byrne that wrote that one? I think it was, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. So he's writing this sort of mythical Kraken-style creature that's going to... Yeah, yeah kicks some butt, and we end up with Dobbin, really, don't we? But you know, literally. But you know what makes the Merkers stand out against Crawl and Invasion of the Dinosaurs and the Silurians is that in Crawl and the Silurians with the dinosaur there, dinosaurs and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah, and in a way, Creature from the Pit as well, because you've got that one long shot. And then in all the other shots, you only see a segment of the creature. Mm-hmm. In Warriors of the Deep, they tried to do a giant dinosaur, and they tried to do yeah. it without using effects. Mm-hmm. They made yeah. it a practical dinosaur with, <laughs> you know, with <laughs> pantomime horse people inside it. 
if it had been a special effect, like uh, the dinosaurs in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, maybe people would have given it a pass. But saying, okay, let's do a giant 20-foot, 30-foot-tall dinosaur as a practical model with two guys inside it operating it. Yeah, that's the big mistake with the Merca, trying to make Mm. it a practical model and thinking you could get away with it any more than you could a puppet. Ridiculous. They should have had children fighting it in the Doctor's costume and get the scale (laughs) in there. See, if Barry Letts was still in charge, it would have been a CSO fest, wouldn't it? Um, we got a message from 42 to Doomsday Facebook feed, which, again, I think is Mark rather than Rob, but it could be mm-hmm. Rob. He said, The Merca, not simply because it is a stunningly stupid idea, but for what it reveals about the production team. We don't care enough to turn the lighting down, or at least the union doesn't give a toss, yeah. <clears throat> to try something sympathetic for the scene. Also, revelatory of the BBC's view of the series at the time, an unworthy blight on their schedules that simply had to be shoved out the door any old town. If you want a pointer to when the series really began to slide, the murka it is. Wasn't it's it not even partly like... the problems with that episode? Wasn't it down to, was it industrial action or there was some issue with, or was it the election or something that caused that to be pushed back so they were really up against it from where go? Oh, I'm not sure. I know it doesn't excuse a a crap monster, but it didn't help. No, I'm not sure. I I don't. I don't necessarily think the lighting is the worst of that story's problems. It's not even like the sea devils look good in that. How did they manage to make the sea devils look worse than they did in the (laughs) seventies? I know. I mean, because the Silurians was quite a nice redesign, if you ask me. I thought they looked great. Really like the Silurians. I did. They turned them into tubbies. They look more like tortoises (laughs) than. Iguanas or whatever. You know, the first one, they're kind of fairly slim. And you can almost believe in the early Silurians as being creatures active enough to have evolved an intelligence. You can... Something that is... This seems to be my theme for tonight, doesn't it? Evolution. (laughs) Something that is as unwieldy in shape as, like, a tortoise or, for instance, in mammals, a hippopotamus, is never going to... is never going to evolve that kind of intelligence because it never is going to be a creature that stands up on two legs and starts using its brain and its hands. Mm. And so the Silurians that we see, they're just kind of chubby and stupid looking. I wonder if it's the same designer who redesigned the, the Cybermen for the 80s because it's kind of got that same aesthetic, the sign of kind of the curves and whatever. Well, Simon, do you know what? I'm going to make it your mission to find out before we come back. <laughs> Maybe I should. Two... Maybe that should be my job. I should be design consultant for the... No, design consultant to the Blue Box podcast. I'm going to make you look it up, you twit. Well, that's what I mean. I could be the one okay. consulting about the designs and things, so when we talk about stories, I'll find out who did what in the background. Well, here we are, 105 episodes down, and finally we've found a use for you. Ah, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, that's... <laughs> well, where's the... Me- Harsh. i tell you what was happening in the background when the Merkel was on. People were sniggering. That's what they were doing. Mm. Yes. Right, guys. In two weeks, we will reconvene to talk about the rest of the crap monsters. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to Can't getting wait. onto the Absorber off, actually, because I think that's quite an interesting thing. Hmm. I think all ten of the ones I've chosen are quite interesting for one reason or another. No, no, absolutely. I suppose yeah. that's yeah. yeah. 
But then that's why I chose them. I didn't choose them necessarily because I thought they were the worst. I chose them because I thought there was something interesting to say about them. Actually, that's me assuming the absorbable off's in there. It might not be in there. But it probably well, it was, is. but I'm going to take it out now. <laughs> oh, you... <laughs> no, I have actually realised that I've chosen Monsters for 9 and 10 for almost exactly the same reason. Mm. And of those two, there is only really one that can go, because the ninth Doctor was only around for one year and only fought one monster. Yeah. So the Absorbaloff might be gone, but if the Absorbaloff is gone, we can still talk about the Absorbaloff when we talk about the other monster, which I am now going to feign not to name, even though everybody's worked out exactly what I'm talking about. Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, until next time, where I will be uh, doing something entirely different on the Blue Box podcast. Until next time, I was JR. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. <laughs>